Most leaders recognize the critical nature of healthy peer relationships, yet few of us lay an intentional foundation for success as those relationships start. In this episode, Michael Bungay-Stanier returns to discuss how to start working with peers using five key questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 635. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. And boy, we've had so many conversations on the show about the relationship between the manager and the employee and how to make that relationship better and to set a good foundation. We've also had many conversations about the manager to the more senior person. How do you manage up and frame that conversation well? What we haven't had as many conversations on is how do you start and maintain a strong relationship with a peer and with your peers. It's such a critical competency for us as leaders, and yet it is something that we don't think about very intentionally, most of us. Most organizations don't think about it very intentionally, and when those good relationships happen, they often happen by chance rather than intention. Today, a starting point for how to begin with peers that will help us to really frame relationships in the best possible way. And I'm so glad to have back on the show Michael Bungay-Stanier. He is the author of eight books, including The Coaching Habit, which has sold more than a million copies and is the best-selling book on coaching this century. Most recently, he wrote How to Begin, and back in 2011, he created and edited End Malaria, a book written in partnership with Seth Godin that raised more than $400,000 for Malaria No More. Michael is the founder of Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that's trained thousands of people around the world. Currently, much of his attention is given to MBS Works, where he provides people with the resources and community to be better and be a force for change. He has been featured on the blogs and platforms of thought leaders like Seth Godin, Tim Ferriss, and Brené Brown, and been featured in many publications, including HBR, Forbes, and Fast Company. His TEDx talk on Taming Your Advice Monster has been viewed more than a million times. Michael's newest book is How to Work with Almost Anyone, Building the Best Possible Relationship. My friend, it is always wonderful to talk to you. I am so grateful that your memory is so terrible that you keep inviting me back, or at least when I knock on your door, you keep opening the door and say, sure, Michael, come on in. So thank you, Dave. This is, you know, I think this is my favorite podcast to do. So being here and being able to talk to you and being able to reconnect with your adoring fans, of which there are many, is a great treat for me. Thank you. Well, it is the best relationships are when both people benefit so much. And I hear (laughs) your name almost every day. The coaching habit comes up in conversations all the time. I find myself asking coaching habit questions every single day. Our members and listeners are asking them every single day. Thank you for everything you've done for us. And this book, Boy, it fits in so well with everything you're always trying to help us do, of building better relationships with others. Mm -hmm. And the word that comes up in this book, maybe more than any other, is the word keystone. And Mm -hmm. before we get into like what it is and and the keystone conversation, I'm just curious, how do you think about that word? Well, 
part of what's great about writing a book is it forces you to go and <laughs> learn some stuff so that you can enrich what you're trying to explain. And so when I was um, trying to get to the heart of what this book was about, and you actually saw it go through some iterations, so you know that it's changed and evolved over time. Really at the heart of this book is this idea that you should have a conversation about how you work together rather than just what you're working on. Because when you do that, everything shifts. And so I'm like, okay, so what I need to do is I need to give that conversation an identity. And I, I came up with a whole bunch of names, most of which were not that great. But then I came across Keystone Conversation. And I'm like, well, that's interesting, a Keystone Conversation. Well, what is that? <laughs> and so I went and looked it up. And Keystone, of course, I knew already, which is it is the the stone at the top of an arch that gives the arch its stability, its strength, its ability to bear weight. And I'm like, that's good. That's a really strong, solid metaphor. I can probably go with that. But in, in looking that up, I realized also that the idea of a keystone had been taken from the world of architecture into the world of ecology and biology. And it is used to describe what's known as a keystone species. Oh, yeah. Which is an animal that has a significant influence on an ecology. And the best story about that, Dave, is the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone. Oh, yeah. There's, there's this great movie that's worth Googling, you know, Introducing Wolves, Yellowstone will help you find it. And the, the park was denuded. There were too many elk who were eating all the trees, and all the trees meant no birds, and no birds meant no fish. It was a kind of, barren is not quite the right word, but it was a diminished ecosystem. Bring in the wolves. The wolves eat the elk. The elk eat fewer trees, more trees, more birds. The river changes shape. Beavers come back. Birds come back. Fish come back. The whole ecosystem becomes more vibrant, more diverse, richer, less vulnerable. And I was like, oh, this is great. Whether you like buildings or whether you like plants and animals, I've got a metaphor that works for either of you. <laughs> Indeed. And we're going to get into a bit of how to have a Keystone conversation with a peer. But I guess big picture first, having this conversation and it going well. What does it do for you and the other party? I guess I'd answer it like this, Dave. Our happiness and our success at work is so dependent on the quality of our working relationships. You, you name two of the important ones right at the top of the show, the, the, the people who you lead if you're a team leader, your boss if you're part of a team. But it's actually all of your relationships, all of your key working relationships. There's such a strong determinant on just how it all plays out and the joy or the enjoyment that you get from the work that you're doing. So when you're building a relationship with a collaborator, whether that is a colleague or maybe it's a, a vendor or somebody outside, or maybe it's a client, if you're in that type of relationship, there's a way to say, if we can build a better relationship, a relationship that is safe and vital meaning full of life with some kind of adventure and growth in it, and also repairable, meaning we can fix it when it gets goes wrong, then we're going to build something that is a joy to be with. I look forward to working with you. The relationship is living up to its potential, and we get the right work done. You mentioned a few moments ago that writing this book was a process, as of course every book is. You write when I showed an early version of this book to a friend of mine, a senior exec at a well-known Silicon Valley company, she suggested that I acknowledge how much bravery and energy it takes 
to invest in a best possible relationship. That is, she said, not a normal way of working in most organizations. She's right. You might be thinking, won't this Keystone conversation be weird, awkward, and difficult? The answer is yes. (laughs) And I was thinking about that and that this is indeed not the common practice to sit down and have a conversation like this with a peer or really any working relationship. How would you invite someone to think about starting with this even before the conversation begins? Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting question, Dave. I, I go a couple of places. The, the, the more obvious place answer to that is start by preparing some answers to some good questions. Because in this book where I'm saying, look, Keystone Conversation, let me recommend five good questions that are part of it that you ask and you answer. And it's really helpful if you've actually had to think about what your answers to those five questions might be. Mm. And in the book, there are kind of like two or three exercises per question to help you deepen and become more subtle and nuanced about your own understanding of who you are and how you show up and how you like to work and how you don't like to work and what makes you brilliant and what triggers you into craziness. And so there's a a, a place to start in some ways is there, no, know thyself, which is like do the work so that you become more aware of that. But I'm going to suggest a, a perhaps a bolder place to start, which is being the person who reaches out and who starts these type of conversations, being the person who goes, I am going to be the person who go, who cares about and is committed to and manages the quality of the working relationships with the people with whom I work. After I'd written the book, actually, I, I read a, an article about one of the regrets of people on their deathbeds. And somebody said, you know, I really regret not reaching out, <laughs> not being the person who reached out to friends who I'd lost touch with, with people who I'd had a fight with, with all these key relationships had drifted away. And being the person who reaches out is a gift to you yourself, but it's also such a gift to other people. Somebody once said, nobody really likes to say hello, but everybody loves to say to be greeted. So if you're Mm. the person who says hello and greets people, you're bringing goodness into the world right away. So perhaps the place to start is saying, I'd like to be the person who helps make great relationships, great working relationships happen where where I am and where I work. That really struck me looking at the book and the framework, that it makes that easier. And to the point from your friend, it does not make it easy, right? It is still an (laughs) act of bravery and courage to do this in a lot of organizations and in a lot of relationships. But as I went through the framework of these questions, and, and we'll get into these, like, what are the five questions? I found, okay, I could do, like, if I just was randomly paired up with someone on a team as a peer for the first time. I I feel like I could just like start and I could use this as a roadmap to begin and that it would make, it would give me enough breakaway speed that I wouldn't feel like I would stop. And, and I, I, and I love that about this model that it's like so many of the things you do, it's simple and it's powerful. So let's get into like some of the questions here. And you mentioned there's five of yeah. like what the framework for a keystone converse, conversation would be with a peer or anyone else. And the first question you call the amplify question. And yeah. the the question is, what's your best? Mm. What do you mean by the word best? Yeah. 
You know, it's interesting. I've, I've been thinking about that question quite a bit. And I'm like, it's actually a slightly awkwardly phrased question. And I'm like, oh, I wish I'd found a slightly more elegant way of saying that. But but here's where I got tripped up, Dave. I, I, I don't want to say, what are you good at? I don't want to say, what are your strengths? In part because they're a bit rote, those questions. I really, and I really want to get a bigger sense of who are you at your best? <laughs> what does that look like? And two of the words that, that really show up for me here is like, what makes you shine? What makes you flow? So, you know, every, all the listeners to this podcast will have heard of the flow state. Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, the psychologist around that, that doing that work when your time speeds up and slows down and you, you kind of lose track of who you are and you're like, oh, this is it. This is the work that I was called to do. But, you know, Cal Newport would call that the deep work, mm. that kind of flow state. And it's also, we've all had that experience of, of seeing somebody else when they're in their sweet spot and you can, and they shine, their eyes glitter. <laughs> it's fantastic. So if I'm in a conversation with you, Dave, I'm like, Dave, you and I are working together. We're colleagues, we're peers. I want to do the very best I can to bring out your best, but what is your best? <laughs> when, when are you at your best? What does it look like? How does, how might that feel? And I take a model that I actually first introduced in the coaching habit book, the three P model. I go, Tell me about the projects, the stuff you do that helps you be at your best. Tell me about the way you work with people and what that looks like when you're at your best. And then tell me your patterns. Tell me about your kind of what's essentially you, your values, your style of working, what you care about. I want to hear about you in that kind of peak state. And the more I know about it, the more able I'm able to think to myself, so how do I help Dave get there? And how do I get out of the way in case I was in the way of getting Dave getting there? And you make a big distinction there. This is a different answer, ideally, than the what are you good at, right? Because the what are you good at may not necessarily be you at your best. Well, that's right. I mean, one, 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 sometimes it is. Sometimes what you're good at is also you at your best, which is terrific. Yeah. But one of the exercises in the book is a classic two-by-two two matrix. So people can imagine this if you draw a box and then put a square in the, in the middle of the box so it divides it into two, four smaller boxes. you got the classic consultant two-by-two two matrix. And you can imagine along the bottom axis, an axis saying good at, plus and minus. And then on the vertical axis, you can imagine the phrase fulfilled by, plus, minus. And hopefully when you're talking about what, how you spend your time, there's not a whole lot in the in the the bottom left bucket, which is stuff I'm not good at and stuff I'm not fulfilled by, because hopefully you're not spending any time there. Right. But you will find stuff, uh, hopefully in the top right-hand corner, which means you're good at it and you're fulfilled by it. But what the really interesting answers for me are often in the other two buckets. I am good at this, but I'm not fulfilled by it. And I'm fulfilled by this and I'm not yet good at it. Because if we were having that conversation, David, and you said to me, Michael, I'm really good at this, but I am not really fulfilled by it. This doesn't light my boat. That is such a helpful directive for me because I'm like, oh, because I just assume if you're good at it, you probably like doing it. So I was just going to give you all of that because I'm like, Dave's good at it. He should do it. But it's really helpful for you to say to me, look, I can do it. I will do it in a stretch, in an emergency if I have to, but don't assume that I actually like doing this. And then in the other box, I'm like, okay, I, this, this lights me up. This gets me excited. 
still not very good at it. So if you give that to me, and I hope you will, I'm going to need some coaching. I'm going to need a support net. I'm going to need some guidelines. I'm going to need you to check in. I'm going to need feedback. I'm going to need a degree of support so that I can accelerate from consciously incompetent to consciously competent. There's an art here of, like you said earlier, maybe art isn't even the right word, but a a preparation to come to the conversation, having thought through some of that for yourself. So you can share that, right? And then there's also a piece of this that how do I create the space and ask the question in such a way where I'm likely to hear the best from someone else? Right. And if you, as you've experimented with this a bit, what have you found that works to either set the stage or how you ask this question that's more likely to elicit the best from your peer versus just maybe hearing about what they're good mm-hmm. at or not? Yeah. So the secret success of sitting down and saying, hey, why don't you and I have a conversation about how we work well together before we jump into the what of it so that we can just give ourselves the best chance of bringing out the best in each other and getting the best work done. The the surprising success of that conversation turns out to be less the immediate answers and more that you have created permission to talk about the health of the relationship. Ah. So, you know, I might say to the people on my team, hey, like we just had somebody join our team last week. And with Emma, I'm like, hey, Emma, I'm, I'm, I'm not your direct boss, but I'm kind of your boss's boss, I guess. But we're going to be working together. So I'd love to check in and, and just have a conversation about how that's going to go, what works, what doesn't work. Let me give you the five questions that I think about. <laughs> and I'm going to do some preparation around that. Maybe you'll do some preparation as well. Um, and then we'll get together and we'll just kind of work our way through and see what, I, see what comes up. Yeah, indeed. Well, and that's actually a really good lead-in to the three middle questions in this framework, which is practices and preferences, and then what you call the good date and the bad date questions. (laughs) So what's an example of what that sounds like? Yeah, well, look, the practices and preferences question really comes from in part, you know, there's you'll know this better than me, Dave. There's kind of rise, I think, mainly in Silicon Valley companies, but beyond that as well, in what's called readmes. So readme documents. Somebody goes right. I'm going to actually list out all the things about me that you should know, so that you can work better with me. So they kind of type it all out. Like I'm a morning person. I'm really good on Slack. I'm really terrible on Zoom. I like my feedback like this. I become intolerable in meetings that go longer than six minutes. You know, whatever it might be. <laughs> They kind of write it all up and they send it out to the world. They're like, good, I've informed everybody about how best to work with me now. Let it let the games commence. And whilst it's super valuable having that information, putting it into a document and sending it out to the world, terrible. <laughs> this is a terrible process. It's like it's it's like expecting people to read the terms and conditions on a new app that they've just downloaded. Everybody just scrolls to the bottom and ticks, yeah, I accept, and uh, no idea what's actually in it. So a practices and preferences is that let's talk about the habits and the systems and the structures that you, you, you prefer to work by. And it can be everything from how do you best communicate? What does it mean when you send an email and how quickly I, you should respond to it? Like what's too long a response time on your email to even things like what are your pronouns or even what's your name and what's not your name. Like my name is Michael Bungay Stanya. I really don't want you to shorten my name from Michael to Mike. 
You know, there are four people in this world, well, 10 people in this world who can call me Mike, and they're my brothers and their wives and their kids. That's it. <laughs> Everybody else is like, my name's Michael. It's not Mike. Mike's a, Mike's a piece of recording equipment that I use for podcasts. And I just want to tell people that right from the top. So they're like, so they don't get it wrong. And so I don't get, I don't have to have a weird conversation, which is like, hey, do you mind not calling me Mike or Mick? <laughs> it's Michael, please. So that practices and preferences question is a real, all the stuff that seems obvious to us. It's like, this is how you do email. This is how we meet. This is how we do feedback. You just get to have that conversation upfront. Again, it's not saying, and you must meet all my conditions. It's saying, let's at least understand what stuff makes life easier for us and what stuff makes us a little twitchy and makes us a bit more defensive. Can I come back to something you said a moment ago? Because this is a practice, the readme document, the user's manual, as as sometimes it's called, of like yep. codifying something, posting it, sending it out, very well intended, right? Your invitation is, let's this let this be a conversation. What's right. different about it being a conversation? What's different is, and this is quite a profound question, Dave, I think. What's different is you are saying we are jointly responsible for the creation of the best possible relationship between us. Uh, it's not your job as the junior person to figure this out. It's not my job as the senior person to take the responsibility. You and I are going to work out how we work best together. And I tend to think the, the readme or the user manual documents, there's this touch of arrogance and hierarchy and power and... Privilege is too strong a word, probably, but this is like, look, you should just read this and you should know this about me and you should remember it. And it's your job to know how to work well with me <laughs> rather than it's our job to work well together. And for me, that is quite the shift in terms of how hierarchy and power work. And that's one of the things that I, it's one of the, it's one of the, the nuances about why I love coaching is that when you're in a more coach like conversation, asking questions rather than giving advice, you're actually disrupting hierarchy, disrupting power, inviting humanity forward. And I think the same is when you have a conversation about how you're working together rather than sending out a, a brisk document. When I think about this, especially through the lens of a peer, where this is influence without authority in almost every case, right? sending over a document seems pretty cold, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> And and I think the other thing you need to say is that everything is influence without authority. <laughs> Even if you're my boss, you are mostly working with influence without authority because, you know, there, it is true that you're my boss, you get to tell me to do some things and there's a way that stuff cascades. But we have far more, we have far less authority and control over things and people than we think. And we, it's mostly done by influence. And relationship is influence. So part of why you are building this, and, you, and this is why you do it with the relationships that matter. You don't have to bother with the transactional relationships. You don't have to do this with somebody who's calling you in the evening trying to sell you aluminum siding. But it's like, this: by building this relationship, we build trust and we build influence with each other. And then let, let, me, let me talk about the bad date and the good date question. Oh, sure. So just really quickly. The key insight around this, this pair of questions is your past relationships are predictors of your future relationships. Different people, different contexts, for sure, but the patterns keep playing out. So good day question. What can we learn from past successful relationships? 
And the bad date question, what can we learn from past frustrating relationships? And being able to say to the other person, look, this is what was said and done and not said and not done by me and by the other person in both the good and the bad past relationships gives the other person so much data on what to do and not do and say and not say to give you the best odds of the best possible working relationship and vice versa. Yeah, and to your point earlier, you may not literally say every vulnerable thing, right? Especially if it's a peer relationship you still currently have. But you're, you're offering something here that is, here's what hasn't worked in the past. Here's where I've run into issues. How do we know that about each other up front and, and, and be willing and gracious to be vulnerable there with the hope that the other person sees that and is able to reciprocate in some way? So one of the, th- you know, with practice as well, you learn what's actually the most useful thing to share. So I will have a conversation with people with whom I work from vendors to people in my team. I'll go, let me tell you how I will screw this up. <laughs> let me tell you how I get in our way. I'm, I, I am either a very fast kind of a mover of things along and approver of things, or I'm a bottleneck. And occasionally something's going to happen where I'm going to just be bottlenecking it for whatever reason might be that it's hard or it's got some conflict in it or I just, I forgot it. All of those are possibilities. And then I'll say, so let me tell you how to manage me when I'm bottlenecking you because it will happen. (laughs) It's not not an if, it's a when. Um, First of all, don't don't hang around and be nice, but like actually kind of go, look, I'm going to be assertive about nudging you and kind of pushing you on this. Secondly, I say, look, send me, let's set this up where you go, Michael, I need you to approve this by five o'clock on Thursday or else I will assume it's approved and I will be moving ahead with it. Mm. Uh, Cause I'm like, cause that actually means that nothing gets stuck in the system. And if I miss it, I miss it. And that's down to me and it's not down to you. So I'm now training people on how to avoid <laughs> the, the worst of me so we can manage it out of the system as best as possible. And that is a really powerful conversation for the people who are listening in it gives them empowerment. Um, really powerful for me as well, which is like, I'm like, I hate being a bottlenecker and I still do it. So I need systems and people around me who know how to circumvent that as best as possible. And it's cooperating with the inevitable versus trying to fight it, right? <laughs> I haven't heard that phrase before, but cooperating with the inevitable is oh, outstanding. It, it's it's a Carnegie. turn that into a book or a URL it, or too something. Too late. Just a great phrase. Yeah, Somebody's got it already. Too late. It's from Carnegie. Yeah, it's from. Uh, oh gosh, where is it? It's from um, "How to Stop Worrying and Start Living." That book. Uh, Cooperate well, that is, with the that is outstanding. It's like Byron Katie says: "I lose every time I argue with reality, but only every time." <laughs> <laughs> the last question is the repair question. How will you fix it when things go wrong? Yeah, and the power of this is it says things will go wrong. <laughs> like when I was talking to Emma, this person who's just joined our team, and, I, and with Ainsley, another person on our team, and the, the two of them work really closely together. And I was like, hey, how's it going? You're one week into it. And they're like, it's amazing. It's, we love each other. It's fantastic. And I'm like, that is so great to hear. This too will pass. <laughs> this is not how it's going to be forever. Somewhere down the line, somebody's going to misstep or miss a deadline or make a mistake or do something inadvertently that will disappoint the other person. And what's good, I think, Dave, is working relationships for the most part are kind of self-healing. Like that 
kind of necessity and people with bad memories mean that we kind of get back on track somewhat. But I'm not sure that they ever really heal completely. They're mostly self-healing. And one of the great things about saying, let's choose to actively manage and repair when damage happens, is that actually that can transform your relationship to be even stronger than it might otherwise be. Just as in retail, people are more loyal to a brand if a brand has screwed up and then done a really great job at at fixing the mistake than they are if you've just done a really great job. It's one of those paradoxes. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, true. If I, if I, I mean, people should be building this into their retail experience, which is deliberately making a small but noticeable mistake and then going over the top to fix it to create brand loyalty. Well, you're doing something similar here, which is if you actively repair, there's a very good chance you, you make the relationship even stronger than it was before. The thing that's really beautiful about this book is that it's a roadmap for exactly how to have a conversation like this. And to our point earlier, it's not easy. It requires courage. But the framework in the book, and there's so much more in the book we haven't hit on, but it, it gets you thinking about how do you prepare for this? How would you answer some of these questions yourself? Where do you come to the conversation with vulnerability? I love even the language of like, how do you set up the conversation? Like, what do you <laughs> say in advance for someone who has no idea? Like, and as we said earlier, most organizations don't do this, don't have a process for this. It's such it's so helpful as a guide. And so I hope folks will utilize it as a way, and I'm going to, as a way to set up relationships that will, like you said earlier, the best possible relationship. If we can do that, that's huge. Yeah. You know, there's a keystone conversation. There are the five questions that we've covered. But the bigger takeaway might be this. Be the person who starts this and and it, take responsibility for starting a commitment to better working relationships. And remember, the basic question is, hey, how can we work better together for your sake and for my sake and for our sake? That's the big question that you're seeking to answer here, because when you talk about how we'll work together, you get much better at what you're working on together. You know, I've often asked people what they change their minds on, and I've asked you that many times before, so I'm not going to ask you that <laughs> exactly. this time. I'd like to ask you about one other thing, though. Your dad passed away in the not-too-distant past. Yeah, a couple of years ago. You talk in the book about encouraging your parents to have a keystone conversation like this when he was getting ill. What prompted you to encourage that? Yeah, you know, so I was back in Australia living in my childhood bedroom, actually, uh, where I grew up. And my dad had been sick, uh, had been in intensive care in hospital where we actually thought he was likely to die, but somehow bounced back from that and came back into the house and had two more months living in the house. And at the time, I was writing the How to Begin book uh, that came out about a year ago. And actually, in the back of that, there's a little homage, I think, in the last chapter to my dad. And being able to read that to him was really powerful just before he died. But at the same time, I was noticing that mum and dad, who had been a, a really great couple for 55 years, I mean, they were really tight. They role modeled love and equality and... All, all the things you hope for in a parent. So I got super lucky with that. But with dad back and with a terminal illness and dying and kind of stuck in his bed, not able to do a whole lot, 
they were both just a bit snarky with each other, you know, and for all the reasons why you can know why. And I just went, you know, I don't want dad, I don't want their last two months or how long it's going to be to be tainted with this kind of slight edge to it. I don't want my mum thinking after dad had died, I wish I'd been nicer and kinder and less grumpy at times around my dad. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> did I want to ask my parents to have this awkward conversation? Not at all. Was mm. I feeling awkward? Absolutely. But, you know, we, after some resistance, we got down and, and in the gentlest of ways, I kind of facilitated this exchange between them, which is like, how do we want to be together in this, in these last few weeks? And we also kind of, what does it mean when this happens? Because there's a way that you can misinterpret what goes on and make it into a thing and just kind of helping people explain what to each other, what's going on and what was behind their behavior. And it was like half an hour. It wasn't really awkward. It was really kind of intimate and tender and sad. And it felt like it made the last weeks easier. So it was quite a big gift for me to be able to participate in that. Having such a difficult conversation like that with people you love more than any in the world, what did you learn about having a conversation like this? Well, I suspect I learned how many of our relationships just carry on in, in automatic mode. And normally that's okay, and normally that means that they're perfectly fine. But what it means to say, how do I help us, me, build the better, deeper, kinder, more resilient, more safe, more vibrant relationships with the people that matter most will make me a happier person. So how about I try and learn how to do that or do that more often? Michael Bungay-Stanier is the author of How to Work with Almost Anyone, Building the Best Possible Relationship. Michael, always grateful for you and your work. Thank you, Dave. Two other resources I'd like you to know about. We're airing this episode a week before Michael's book is available. And so if you pre-order it, there's a number of bonus items that Michael is making available at bestpossiblerelationship.com. So if you're planning to order the book and you pick this up in the first few days, go over to bestpossiblerelationship.com to get access to a bunch of the bonus items. In addition, we know many of you have been following Michael's work since reading the coaching habit and the advice trap and many of the other conversations that we've had together on the show over the years. And we thought it would be fun to share a bit more of the behind the scenes of Michael's writing process. And so we have aired, in addition to the main conversation today, we've also posted a bonus audio, it's a little over 10 minutes, of Michael and I talking about his process of writing this book. And it changed a lot from the beginning to the end. So if you'd like to hear me talk with him a bit more about the process, a little bit of the backstory, I'd invite you to look in the episode notes. You will see a link there for the bonus audio. In addition, I will also post that in this week's weekly leadership guide for those of you who receive that by email. Several other related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 328, How to Deal with Opponents and Adversaries. Peter Block was my guest on that episode. We talked about the reality that sometimes the peer relationships in our organizations feel like 
those folks are opponents and sometimes that they're adversaries. When that happens, when that dynamic has emerged, how do you navigate it? We talked with Peter in episode 328 of exactly what to do step-by-step, how to think about those relationships and what you can do to navigate around them and also improve them. Again, episode 328 for that. I'd also recommend episode 586. Speaking of working with peers, my guest was Eric Pliner on that episode, and we talked about how to involve stakeholders in decisions. Sometimes our peers are involved in the decision process, maybe our decision to make, but peers have influence, other stakeholders have influence. How do we actually involve those folks, even if they are not the decision maker, and navigate that in the best possible way politically? Episode 586, exactly how to do that. If you find yourself with the decision that maybe is yours, but is smart to get input and feedback and maybe even a bit of influence from others in the organization, episode 586, a good one for you. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 617, how to start a big leadership role. Carol Kaufman was my guest on that episode, and she made the point that one of the biggest indicators of success in a big leadership role is relationships with peers. It was a bit of an inspiration for this conversation with Michael as well. Again, episode 617 for that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, take a few moments to go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership. It's going to give you access to the entire episode library since 2011, searchable by topic. We make the entire library freely available on all the podcast directories, so it's easy to find, but it's not possible on the podcast directories publicly to be able to uh, allow you to search by topic. So we've brought that onto the website inside the free memberships. You can find what's most relevant to you right now. You can get access to that, including all of the free audio courses, my book notes, my database and library. All of it's available for free at coachingforleaders.com. Just set up your free membership. And if you're looking for a bit more, I'd invite you to learn about Coaching for Leaders Plus. You can find out more by going to coachingforleaders.plus. And one of the benefits inside Coaching for Leaders Plus is recordings of our monthly expert chats. Every month I sit down with a select group of our members and interview one of our guests, but it's not me asking the questions. It is from our members directly. We have a conversation about their work, how it applies to the things our members are doing inside their organizations right now. And the reason I'm thinking about it is Michael has been gracious to be a guest twice with us on those expert chats. The recordings of those and all the other expert chats from the past are inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. You can get access and discover more by going over to coachingforleaders.plus. Next week, I am glad to welcome Vanessa Patrick to the show. We have talked a bunch of times before on how to say no, the importance of boundaries, but we have not had a conversation about how do you say no when someone else pushes back pretty strongly. Vanessa and I are going to be having a conversation about how to handle pushback from the most difficult askers. Join me for that conversation next week, and I'll see you back on Monday.